Could you please stand with me as we read God's word? First one is in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Second reading is from Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. I think if I uh, look at people around the world, I think the um, greatest critters who roam our earth are toddlers. Because their world is coming alive, right? It's, It's a great, curious place for them. And one of the wonderful things that happened is their first word. And everybody in the family gets so excited, they said daddy or mom or uncle even. And, and that was pretty excited. But, but what happens is they begin to develop that vocabulary and they string sentences together. They discover a little word, why. Why. Some of you smiled and laughed because you heard it. They're just curious. Why are there many colors in the rainbow? Why don't crabs have eyebrows? <clears throat> why do we have to drive on this side of the road? Mommy, why does your car go slower than Daddy's? (laughs) Daddy, why does Siri know so much more than you do? (laughs) Mommy, why does Daddy get mad when I ask questions? (laughs) Well, parents can hardly wait till they discover Google (laughs) so they can get their own answers. But as annoying as that word why can become to a parent, I have to say that I was reminded again as I look through today's passages that why is one of the greatest Bible study tools that we have because you uncover so much that you normally wouldn't see when you need to answer the question why why did God do that why did God say that why does God want this what is God up to so if you turn back to Romans 5 a very familiar passage what I'd like to do is take a look at that passage at a few words that characterize the state that we're in before we become a Christian. You're familiar with the words, but I want to put them together in a bunch. Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. 
he says, while we were still weak, and weak is really not even the best word there. The, 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 a better interpretation of the, of the word is powerless. While we were powerless, we were in a condition we couldn't do anything about. I couldn't change it on my own. Christ died for the ungodly. There was nothing godly or godlike about us. And then in verse 8, he calls us sinners. Now, we're all sinners. But the word means we were devoted to our sin. We were committed to it. We loved it. Whether we're passive or active in our rebellion against God, we were devoted to sin. What a description Paul's giving us. And then he says, because of that, we stood in line of God's wrath. In verse 10, he called us enemies. We were enemies. We normally think in terms of, well, I wasn't that bad a guy. But Paul says, no, you were an enemy of God if you did not bow the knee to him. I was an enemy. And then you look at the words in which God intervened. Hardly would someone die for a righteous person, maybe a good person. God, out of his love, actually allowed his son to die on a cross. He put his son on the cross. He says that <clears throat> we were reconciled. We're no longer enemies. Now I'm his friend. I belong to him now. I've been reconciled. I've been justified. When God says that he, <clears throat> he paid for my debt, his son died on the cross, the word used is not here, but in some other passages, is that the fact we were redeemed. The word redeemed meant someone paid a ransom. He paid off a debt that I couldn't pay. And in paying that debt, God could forgive me. And when he forgave you and me, when we became a Christian, it says that he justified us. That's an accounting term or a legal term. It meant that he took Jesus' righteousness and put it into my account. In and of myself, I was not righteous, but I was given Christ's righteousness. It was a great day, and we were reconciled back to God. So we have that picture of going from being totally powerless to one and that I'm reconciled to God. Then turn, if you would, to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> he speaks of when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. We've just celebrated Christmas. That very act that God stepped in. But notice in verse 5, and he did it to redeem, the, verse, the word that we described in, in Romans 5, to redeem those who were under the law, meaning the law condemned me, but God redeemed me. And then comes the two most important words in the sentence so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, just for clarification, this word sons, when this word is used throughout the New Testament, of which they've interpreted sons, it refers equal to male, equally to male and female. It's not just to boys or males. And so he says he's made us his children by adoption. That, was the, that is the reason he paid such a price was to redeem us so that he could adopt us. Now, <clears throat> there are a lot of theological words here. In fact, if you were to turn to someone like Lewis Berry Schaefer, 
He's a man who is a co-founder of Dallas Seminary, first president of the seminary. He wrote a book in which he outlined 33 things that happened that moment you or I trusted Christ as Savior. You can look up on Google. You can find it. 33 things. And it's easy to get caught up in all those individual words, and, and adoption is one of those 33 things. But adoption stands a little bit apart because it's kind of the end result of what God was after. The other words are just as important, but this one has greater significance in our daily lives, in our relationship with God. He has adopted us. Here's the kicker. How that question is answered, why did God pay such a price, will affect the kind of relationship we will experience with God. How we answer that question, why did God pay that price, will affect the kind of relationship we experience with God. Galatians really brings us back to this. He redeemed us so that he could adopt us. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, gives a, a lot of material on this, but I pulled three quotes that just stood out. The first one, the whole of the Christian life is viewed through adoption. I'd never looked at it that way before. We view the Christian life through adoption because of what that meant. Secondly, Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And thirdly, he makes this statement. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Justification is what made this possible. But what Packer is saying, if I grasp adoption, it tells me what my experience in this relationship under adoption will be. You see, Paul referred to Roman adoption because to the audiences he wrote to, Ephesus, the believers in Galatia, to the Romans, when he wrote that, they being in the Roman Empire understood what adoption meant. Adoption under Roman law was unique. It was rarely an infant adoption. Adoption was when a a person didn't have children to be his heirs, or he wasn't real happy with who was going to be his heirs. He adopted either a young boy or even a grown male. And in that adoption, an agreement was made with the parents of the boy or the young man who forfeited any claim to his life from that day forward. They could not come back and say, oh, you're doing pretty well now. We'll take some of that. No, legally, that was a separation. And when the witnesses had signed on the line and the deal was done, all the debts and obligations of that adopted son were erased. And he was given the full rights and privileges of a natural-born son. In fact, a man in Roman law could disown his own son, but he could never disown an adopted son. Think of the implications of that that Paul is trying to show us when he talks about being adopted by God, that God is the one that canceled our debt. I owe no more. I cannot earn any more. 
God has taken care of my debt that causes separation between him and me. I'm entitled to all the rights and privileges of his own son, Jesus. I am co-heir of everything that God has in the universe, in eternity, with Jesus. It's a unique relationship. And because of that adoption, I'm considered a child of God. We are children of God. It brings us back then to the issue, though, so why adoption? Why didn't God use something else to show this to us? It's because adoption is a lens through which we view the entire Christian life. Adoption establishes the kind of relationship that God desires for us to experience. Think in this term. What if God did not take the role of father, but instead he took the role of financial advisor, family doctor, mentor, teacher, coach, good neighbor? He didn't, because father takes an entirely different position with a person than any of those honorable roles. We did not join a club. We did not join an association or a company or even a church. We joined a family. We joined the family of God. And so you can pull apart a number of aspects of the Christian life and say, so what does this mean that I have a father in heaven? A few of them. How about security? Security. God says, I now make you my heir of all that I have in eternity. Everything. I'm an adopted child who cannot be disowned. Obedience. You know, as Christians, we struggle sometimes on this spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is legalism. You know, I just haven't been doing real well in my relationship with God. I, I, I need to kind of make it up. I need to do better so God sees me in a better light. I need to earn something with God, which you can't do. On the other end of the spectrum, I have license. I have been forgiven. Free wheeling now, I can, I'm, I'm free, I'm, I'm in. Doesn't matter what I do. Both of those fall in great error because what God says is I've forgiven you by grace had nothing to do with you. It affects where we're at in faith. I can trust God as a father, not as a company. God can never do anything outside of his goodness his grace or his righteousness. It's an impossibility or he'd not be God. Hope. Hope has to do with kept promises. It creates security. We have a father who keeps his promises. How about this one? Prayer. Prayer. When we pray, we are not throwing our prayers heaven to, heaven's way that it might be captured by some heavenly answering service. In fact, Ephesians when Paul writes to the, to the church in Ephesus, he says, God desires for us to approach his throne with boldness and confidence, not timidly even. In other words, when I pray, I should envision I'm actually standing before God in his throne, and I'm not fearful because he's not angry. He's not angry. The psalmist says we ought to seek God's face. And he uses, many of the writers use the word face for God's presence. 
that I actually stand before God's presence. Now, God is not a physical being. He's spirit, so he doesn't have a face, but he uses face to convey his presence, his emotions. God's spirit is grieved when we sin. Jesus wept when his good friend Lazarus died. He wept over the people of Jerusalem who had rejected him. So he has emotion. Let me ask you this. If God answered your prayer verbally in your conversation with him, in what tone would he speak? What, what do you think his tone would be when you spoke to him? Or even better yet, as you appeared before the throne, is he smiling? Or is he, not you again? <laughs> really? I have to think about that. Is God smiling when you pray to him? I would say, yeah. Is he delighted? Is he as excited about, as, as a parent whose kid just came home from college? It's hot dog, my kid's back in the house. Yes, it is. It's delight in his life when you and I are standing before him. Not drudgery, not, oh no, not that again. It's never that way. Not when I've come into this relationship. How about his care or his providence? This has struck me this week as I, as I turn back again to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus' disciples said to him, they'd noticed he'd spent time praying to the Father. And so they asked Jesus, would you teach us to pray? So Jesus says this, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you shut the door and pray to your Father, not my Father, your father, who is in secret, and your father, who sees in secret, will repay you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus is getting a little redundant, but he keeps going. So, pray then in this way. What's the next word? Our Father, who art in heaven. Father, Father, Father. He keeps bringing the disciples back to our Father because we've been adopted. How about purpose in life? You see, when we joined the family of God, we, we became part of the business of God. One of the greatest tragedies is when people struggle in life because they feel no purpose. But for the believer, I do have purpose. I represent God on earth until I'm taken home. I'm his outpost here. Justice. God the Father will balance the scales of the injustices of our world in his time. May not be when I wanted to. But you see, fatherhood is linked to authority, to lordship, to kingship, to sovereignty. Those are not removed from his father role. And so God will handle justice. We're left with a question, though. Why do we miss the significance of adoption? Why does it not naturally ring true for us? And I think it's this. We all have grown up with a particular picture that we have of God. That picture has been formed by a number of things. It could be the voices of our parents, or anyone else in authority, a coach, a boss. We have grown up with the way the culture has depicted fatherhood. We have grown up with particular disappointments and unmet expectations that we have of God. We, we have painted a certain picture of the God that we want. 
And God says, all my ways are not your ways, Isaiah 55. And so we live with this picture. And so when we come under stress or difficulty, what do we do? Our default kicks in. And you may believe a hundred things about God's character, and you can quote the verses, but the real default picture of God doesn't match the scriptures. For example, you've got a young man who, who grows up with a very strict father. And when he's disciplined by his father, his father walks away. He does not restore the son. His dad goes cold. How do you think that young man is going to experience God when he sins? His default's going to kick in. Oh, that's what happens when I mess up. And so we live with these defaults. I was at a sports camp that I helped staff many years ago in Colorado for about two weeks. There were about 100 athletes there from major universities around the country. And uh, it was a great camp. The last night of the camp, campers got up and shared what they'd learned that week. One particular girl from a volleyball team at UCLA, she got up and she said, you know, I, I've envied some of my teammates. They had great homes, neat families. My mom died when I was a little girl. And then a few years later, I lost my brother to an accident. I didn't grow up in a very happy home. And so she talked about that and how that had affected her. She almost kind of resented some of her teammates. And then she said, but this week I've begun to understand something different about God, that it's, it, he, he does things differently than I would. And, he sa- and she said, you know, I've come to realize that I'm the only Christian in my extended family, and God has placed me there for testimony. And I'm so grateful you know, it just changed a part of her picture of who God was. You know, as I reflect on that, it comes back to this issue that we're a lot like that girl. Again, our picture doesn't always match up to the scriptures. Because like her, we say, you know, God's really not fair. I mean, God gave that guy some opportunities I didn't get at work. Or God gave that person some gifts that I never got. I, I wish I could sing like that. Or, you know, God made me this way, I wish I'd been that way. Or, you know, the list goes on. But what we've kind of notched into our memory bank, into our picture as a default, is that God's not fair. You know, the bad thing is that Satan comes along and says, yep, he's not fair, I told you. And we buy the lie. We'll buy the lie. I've got to go back to the book of Psalms where he's, he's touted over and over God is great. God is so far beyond my picture. I will never in my lifetime grasp it all, but I want to go after it. God is great. What was Jesus doing when he gave the the, uh, story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? For the people who listened, he was repainting their picture. No, this is what God is like. That angry, rebellious son who ran off with a family inheritance lived with pigs for a while, finally buckled and came back home, and the father embraced him. Jesus was repainting the picture of who God is. So what do I do with this? The good news is this. God delights in revealing himself to us, and I do think it's a lifelong venture. Because that picture that we have as a default can be kind of etched deeply and I need to give God the freedom to change that. 
51 years ago last summer, I sat under a Bible teacher by the name of Dr. Earl Rodmacher. And in that theology class, he made this statement, I'll never forget, every spiritual problem has its roots in either an erroneous or an inadequate understanding of who God is. Every spiritual problem has its roots in either an erroneous or an inadequate view or understanding of who God is. And that's why I want to make the study of God's attributes and his character a lifelong venture. He's continuing to change my understanding. Let me suggest three studies that I think are incredibly helpful. They'll change your life. The first one is this, to take out the four Gospels. Do it during your quiet time, your devotional time, your study time. Take the four Gospels and go through every one of them with just one question. What is the relationship between Jesus and God-like? See, our earthly fathers weren't God. They weren't perfect. None of us are perfect. We're never perfect parents. But what was it like between Jesus and his father? then the reason I ask that question is that's the very same relationship that God desires to cultivate with us. He loves us just like he loves Jesus. He's loyal to us just like he is to Jesus. He asked some things of Jesus that Jesus said, is there another way we could do this? But then he said, but your will be done. We'll go with that. What was that relationship like? Second one is to go to Isaiah 40 through 46. Seven chapters. I think this is the most concentrated section of scriptures on the character of God. And it's God declaring to a group of people who are headed for some hard times. And God is declaring who he is and what he does and why he does it. And in your time in there, just take three or four verses a day. But spend about 15 or 20 minutes praying through those three or four verses and asking yourself, what does this tell me about God's character? Who is he? Who is he? If I can begin to answer that question, it disrupts that default picture I have. Because God claims some pretty astounding things in those verses if you've not been there recently. And I have to say, sometimes they're almost comical. I, I, I keep thinking of this verse in the middle of this. I, I wish I had it on the tip of my tongue, but there's a verse where God says, you know, you wonder if there are other gods. I know of none. <laughs> Just... God knows of no other gods. Well, that kind of answers it for me. It's, it's that bluntness, bluntness of which God declares who he is that I need to get a grip on because of the way it affects my life. Third one is the book of Psalms. 150 chapters, about six months. Take a chapter a day with one question. What do I learn about God's character? Because in almost every chapter, the people who are dealing with life, real life issues are struggling and you, you, you see their anger and their despair and their, their hope and their hopelessness and by the end of the chapter you see their firm grip on God's character and their whole tone of the chapter changes. And what you want to do with any one of those three studies is either in a file on your computer or in a notebook you set aside for this, take notes. You want it in writing. And the reason is, by the time you get done, you want to page back through that and say, whoa, this is recurring. Oh, God claimed this again. Oh, look what God did. I want to put them in one, one account where I can get the full impact of that. 
helpful to take notes. If you're a note taker, break the habit, take notes. It, it, it will change so much of your understanding and your view of it. Well, let me close with this. A couple of verses out of Revelation 21. If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation 21. Next to the last chapter in your Bible. And in contrast to the opening chapters of the Bible, you have creation in Genesis, and then Adam and, Adam and Eve sinned. And where once they walked in the Garden of Eden with God and experienced and enjoyed his fellowship, it said that God dwelt with them and walked and talked in the Garden. Chapter 3. And when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden. They no longer had that dwelling personally with God. Fast forward to Revelation 21, and what is God rejoicing about as he closes history's, Earth's history? Verse 1 and 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God and made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Jump down to verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And here it is. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son and daughter. What a finish. God's heart is to dwell with his people. That's why he adopted us. And that's the closing of life on earth as we know it as God moves into a new phase of eternal history that he dwells with his people, his adopted children. It changes the way I walk with God. It changes the way I relate to him. It changes my expectations of him. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We are such grateful people that we've been adopted. We have belonging. We have identity. We have security. You're trustworthy. You're personally our God, our protector. You're God who loves us, who's even committed to bringing difficulty to our lives to make us more like your son. And so, Father, today we thank you for this adoption. Make us mindful of it, that we live with a, a great, great, wonderful, heavenly Father. In your name we pray, amen.